That was a lot of announcements, wasn't it? Took us all the way into July. I, I was thinking while Craig was doing all those announcements that since we're going that far out in the future, my birthday's in September. So <laughs> we just, I mean, that's just something. I mean, if you're marking stuff down, I mean, you know. Uh, well, good morning, everybody, and it's, it's good to be back. Last week I was out. I had the opportunity to preach a conference down in Alabama. A good friend of mine, Randy Copeland, his church, Pleasant Grove. Moulton, Alabama, and that was a that was a really really good time. Um, you have now figured out Troy's not with us today, so he just had some uh, outpatient surgery at the end of the week, and he's recovering. He's well. He's fine. He just was not able to stand here and and do what he loves to do this day. So you know they called in the bullpen, and uh, and here we are. So we're taking a break from the Book of Acts today, and we're just going to do uh, a particular message. You have the notes there in front of you, but, but in keeping in my mind, at least as I was praying about how to bring something to you uh, that would be meaningful, um, I was thinking, you know, the theme of the book of Acts, at least devotionally speaking, is all about zeal for the mission. I, I mean, the book of Acts is exciting because these guys, I mean, they took their faith seriously and they went out and turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. And I love reading the book of Acts from a pure devotional standpoint. Uh, there's a lot of important doctrine to get right or not get wrong, especially in these first chapters that we're studying. But, but just the idea that these guys took what they understood and they ran with it, man, that's a, it's a great study. Um, again, the title very simply is The Acts of the Apostles. And, and I say that as an introduction to today because the apostles... In Matthew chapter 10, were first called apostles. Previously, they were called disciples, right? But when they were sent out, they were called apostles. But, but they started out as disciples. And they started out as disciples, but they just kept going. They kept going further with their life for, with the Lord and for the Lord. And so that's kind of the theme that I want us to consider. The, the title that I picked for today is a question, Are You a True Disciple? of Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to challenge anybody's status with the Lord. It's just a fair question that I want us all to consider as we get into today's message. I mean, this church has certainly been familiar with the term and the concepts of discipleship for well over 30 years now. And praise the Lord for that. Man, that's a, that's a wonderful heritage. And, and, and we're excited that it's become a very comfortable subject and we understand that as the key element of the mission that we're given to do. But the danger with that is that we can get complacent, right? We live like, well, I've already got that t-shirt. And then we just kind of go on to other things and we find ourselves sometimes less motivated to pursue disciples than maybe we once were. And I think that's a real challenge. So, so you got to ask yourself, why is that? Why do many former disciples leave their first love? And why does the love of many wax cold? And why do once hot disciples become lukewarm? And why do we, as church staff, every so often have to keep planning some sort of a discipleship reset event or rework the material in some way for you just to keep it fresh. In other words, how can we just keep our focus and intensity strong year after year after year? Wouldn't that just be the best way to do it? Because I don't know about you all, you've probably heard it too much from me already, but I cannot get my head away from the fact that we are in the last days. The end is near, that clock is ticking, and we are ever closer to the end, the rapture of the church and the soon coming judgment seat of Jesus Christ. We know, this church knows, that these last days of Laodicea, they're characterized by failure. They're characterized by selfishness. And yet this is our chance to run to the finish line faithfully and to earn to become what the Bible calls overcomers and to earn what is, in my opinion, and I would argue clearly revealed, the 
best reward package available to anybody in any time of church history, to the overcomers of Laodicea. Read Revelation 2 and 3 and check it out for yourself. I want to frame our study this morning around the principle of these two key verses. John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. You can follow along. John 8, 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, we often quote verse 32, right? We, we like verse 32, you know the truth, and the truth will make you free, and, and that's awesome. I mean, it's a, it's a great promise, and that's why you should strive to know the truth more and more in your life, no question about it. But you need to realize that verse 32 comes after verse 31. It's a conditional statement, right? If ye continue in my word is a prerequisite for qualifying to be a disciple indeed, a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And so what I'd like to do this morning is just challenge you to make an honest self-assessment. not asking you to post it on social media. We're not asking you to even necessarily discuss it with anybody. But just between you and the Lord, nobody has to know. Just consider where you really stand in your active walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you want to know for yourself where you're actually at? I mean, you should, right? So, you know, some questions for consideration. Are you actively following the Lord daily? That would be evidenced in several ways. For example, do you daily make time to spend alone with the Lord in His Word and in prayer? Are you currently serving the body of the church in some capacity? And many of you do. And if you do, well, what's your reasoning behind your ministry involvement? In other words, why do you do what you do? You see, these are some of the things I want us to consider this morning as, as we study. And, and would you just let the Lord speak to your heart on this subject today? We're going to pray, and then we're going to jump into our outline. Heavenly Father... As we come before you, Lord, we, we do desire to just allow you to speak to our hearts. We do desire to allow you to let your word be the mirror through which we can see how we're really doing. And uh, I'm not afraid of it. We shouldn't be afraid of it. We love you. You love us. You've demonstrated that in so many ways. It's not even funny. Lord, we want to hear from you. And, and if there's things that we can do better than show us that. If there's things that need to be adjusted, show us that. If there's sins that need to be dealt with, show us that. And between you and me personally, we can deal with it. But God, it all starts with understanding the truth so then that truth can make us free. So I pray that you would speak to us using your holy word, the truth that it is, and, turn, and set us free to be able to serve you with joy for the rest of our days until this soon end becomes a reality. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're going to jump in and we're going to start uh, our first point, and I'm calling it expected to serve. You're expected to serve. Everybody knows that if you've been in church any length of time, and certainly today would be the proverbial preaching to the choir. I'm preaching this message as though most, if not all of you, are already believers in Jesus Christ. That may not be the case. There would be something for even you if you're new and you're still considering the claims of Jesus, but most of us say that we know these things. You, you know the Christian life includes some element of service as well. In fact, the Bible's very clear. From the moment of our salvation, we were saved to serve. There's no doubt about it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, very popular verses for salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, right? Not of works, lest any man should boast. You don't obtain salvation because of the good things that you do. Right? If you don't know the Lord yet, it's not based on your good works outweigh your bad works, and that's how you know you get to go to heaven. I'm basically a good guy. And it doesn't work that way. You're saved by grace through faith and His shed blood, not of works. But when you do exercise your faith in the, in the grace and the gift of eternal life, then God has a plan for you. And that's verse number 10. For we, those who have responded to the gospel, are His workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath noticed before ordained that you can consider whether you want to do it or not. No, it doesn't say that. No, that you should walk in them. You're ordained to good works after your salvation. God is not trying to make us little slaves or little soldiers, right, that he just, you know, going to command us to do stuff to see if we'll jump high enough and do what he says. It's not a game. His command to serve is actually connected with his love and his provision for us. Consider Adam. When God first created Adam, Adam was called the son of God. Luke chapter 3 and verse 38. Adam, the very first son of God, had work to do in the garden, didn't he? And why is that? That was before sin. Why is that? Well, because work is valuable, right? Work gives your life purpose. And now that we become sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, God gives us work to do also, Ephesians 2, 10. Because it's valuable, it gives us purpose in our life. And the little phrase that I made, and I didn't put it in your notes, I probably should have, you probably should write it down. Sonship leads to service. Sonship will always lead to service. And that's what I want us to consider. God commands us to do things for our good, not for his benefit to get stuff done. He can get stuff done. It's for our good. That's his love and his goodness toward us. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 24 says, The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. And specifically back in the time of the wilderness wanderings and entering into the land of Canaan and all of that, that's fine. There were specific physical laws that protected them and kept them alive. But literally, as a principle, God gives us things to do because he loves us. It's for our good. And by the way, obeying him, well, that shows our love to him, right? That's very clear. Everybody knows talk is cheap. We, you know, actions speak louder than words, all that sort of thing. John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, I mean, we're not sure yet, let's find out. If you love me, keep my commandments. Well, I mean, you know, that's not the verse that everybody's just, you know, hanging on their wall. I get it. But he said it. In other words, to love the Lord is to love his word. And, and the word of the Lord, well, it really represents his very soul, doesn't it? It's his mind. It gives us the very mind of God. It reveals his will, right? And it tells us what God thinks and feels about stuff. His mind, his will, his emotions. That's God's very soul. That's, that's the very essence of his very being in written form. That's his word. To love the Lord is to love his word. It reveals his very person. So to take the Lord's word seriously and to actually do it because he said it, not necessarily because it makes sense to you, to actually do it, well, that, that's a demonstration of love. And the Lord sees that as a demonstration of love. John chapter 15, the very next chapter, verses 9 and 10, he says this, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye, kind of like John 8, 31, continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Who doesn't want to abide in the Father's love? Of course, it's for our benefit, therefore, to have something to do. So here's what I want you to get. After you get saved, God expects you to serve him. Why? Well, I put this in your notes. Because ministry activity is how you maintain a healthy love relationship with God. And that's actually very important for you to just set 
in your mind. It's for your good. It's a lot like a marriage. Anybody who's married and certainly who's been married for any length of time knows that it takes regular and consistent work. You know, the proverbial honeymoon wears off over time. And you're in real life and we're all sinners and we all have faults and we all have struggles and we have to work it out together and it takes regular, consistent work. But if you're smart, you'll just make a -a once-in-a-lifetime adult decision and settle it in your mind. I'm going to be a good spouse. I'm going to do the work that's necessary, right? And I'm going to make it a part of my being. It's a part of my lifestyle. I'm not going to complain about it being a chore or a burden to have to help and serve my wife. I'm just going to settle it in my mind once and for all, and then it becomes easy. It just becomes a part of who you are. And who you are when you do that is somebody with a happy marriage. That's who you are. And you know what? It's the same with the Lord. If you just settle it in your mind, well, then it just becomes easy. It just becomes a part of what you're going to do. It starts making its way up the priority list, right? And and there's no question anymore about other things and challenges and struggles that tempt you. Okay, so your next question may be, okay, well, how can I do that? Because the truth of the matter is I can't pull this off on my own. It's kind of a big deal. Yes, of course it is. So this is point number two in our outline, and that is equipped to serve. Okay, you're expected to serve, yes. But because God loves you, he didn't leave you alone to do the work. It's, it's, it's not the Big Bang version of Christianity. You know, the salvation is the Big Bang. Now work it out on your own. He's given you, because of his love, all the tools that you need so that you can succeed. And you know this, so we're going to go through this fairly quickly. First and most importantly, letter A, is God's Spirit. He's given you His Holy Spirit to dwell inside of you. What an amazing resource. Have you actually considered what an amazing resource the third person of the Trinity and dwelling your body really is? Now, this isn't a study on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but let me just direct your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 6. The Spirit gives us life, and He does it for a reason. It says in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, who also, hath made, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. The Spirit of God is what actually gives you your new life in Christ. And oh, by the way, in the exact context of what Paul is communicating, through that makes you, not just ministers because you're expected to serve, he makes you able ministers because he gives you all the tools that you need to be able to serve. You don't have to pull it off in your own flesh. You don't have to figure out how you can get it all done, right? The Spirit gives spiritual life to you at the moment of salvation so that you can be an able minister of the New Testament. Sonship leads to service every single time. It works that well. I mean, the Holy Spirit guarantees you that if you put your faith and trust in Christ, you have eternal life. This this great doctrine of eternal security, you can't possibly lose this eternal life that's been gifted to you is described in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby, whereby by the Holy Spirit, you're sealed unto the day of redemption. He's not quitting on you. There's no need for you to quit on him. He's not quitting on you. He's sticking with you to the very end, no matter what. And he, obviously, the Holy Spirit, is the primary resource behind all the good things that are in our life. Again, this is review for many people, right? So that's like the next thing, letter B, God's Word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, you know this, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. This inspiration, that, that very word, inspiration, has in its root 
the inspire, the spire part, that's the same root word as spirit. It's given by the very spirit of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be perfect to do some stuff. Throughly furnished, right, unto all good works. So he's given you his spirit he's, so that you can be able ministers. He's given you, the very spirit has given you his word so that through it, right, you can understand these things, get your life lined out. And you can be completely and totally equipped, furnished unto all good works. The Spirit wrote the Word. He lives inside of you. It's given by His inspiration. And He then doesn't leave you alone with it either. John 16, verse 13, Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth. So the he gave you his word. He lives inside of you. He promises that he's going to guide you unto all truth, but it's not magical, automatic, fairy dust from heaven. You, you have to put in some work, but he'll guide you in the work that you put in. That's 2 Timothy 2.15, right? Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman, Hey man, it takes some work to study that needeth not to be ashamed. And the way that you do it accurately, the right way to do it is by rightly dividing the word of truth. Okay, these things are review. We're, we're building a case here. So God's given you his spirit. God's given you his word. That's all you need. What else could you possibly need? Well, actually, there's more. There's actually more. Letter C, God's gifts. He's actually given specific gifts, even more. Oh, my goodness. James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. If there's anything good in your life, it came from the Lord. Amen? Just true. If there's anything, either that or, or God lied. No, that's true. Every good gift, everything good in your life, everything perfect in your life, that came from the Lord. That's where it came from. And listen, there are many, many wonderful gifts that we all enjoy regularly in our lives. We have physical life and health and jobs and relationships and levels of comfort and recreation and and all these various things, and they are good gifts from the Lord. There's no question about it. But if we're going to be speaking specifically about serving, then we're talking about spiritual gifts. That's what we're talking about. They're called the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Again, going back to the very most important gift is receiving God's Spirit. Then God's Spirit gives us His Word, and God's Spirit equips us with specific spiritual gifts to be able to serve him, right? Now, again, this isn't a course on spiritual gifts. We actually have a class for you in our MTT series of classes that's available for you to take. But 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is one of the key passages of Scripture that deals with the topic of spiritual gifts, if you're unfamiliar. So in the context of spiritual gifts, it says in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 7, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man context every saved man to profit with all for the profit of others so the spiritual gifts that are given to you are not for your own particular profit the spiritual gifts that are given to me are not for me the spiritual gifts given to me are to serve they're for you the spiritual gifts for you are for me and for everybody else that's how it works right okay but i want you to see that verse 7 calls spiritual gifts the manifestation of the Spirit. That's what spiritual gifts are. It's God's Spirit working through you and manifesting Himself and His power and His Spirit. It's given to you. It's a gift to serve others because sonship leads to service. Absolutely. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse number 11. This is another one of the places in the Scripture that refers to spiritual gifts and it says he speaking of Jesus gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers but why 
Well, for the perfecting of the saints, that's for your particular spiritual growth as an individual, and for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So spiritual gifts are given so that you can serve others. Okay, great, awesome, cool, got it. Where are we going with this? All right, well, that's why I put the next thing in your notes. The Lord isn't simply interested that you serve, but rather why and how you serve. And this is really where I want us to go. What you do is serve. Why you serve, well, now that's, that's really where the rubber meets the road. That's really the most important thing that I want you to understand because if you're doing all the what to do and you don't really land on why you're doing it, you're going to burn out. You're going to burn out and you're going to quit because you're ending up, you're doing it because you're a nice guy. And, and as nice of a guy as you are, it's tiring. It's, it, you know, it, it's wearisome, right? Be not weary in well-doing. Why did God say that? Because well-doing is wearisome. And, and he knows that. And so you can't do it yourself. If you're just doing the what without the why, you're going to quit. You're only going to do it so long, right? But if you understand the why, you'll never just sit around idly and not do the what, right? The why always leads to the what. It's the right motivation. In other words, you can serve and not love the Lord. But you can't love the Lord and not serve. You can't do it. It's impossible. Or, by definition, you didn't actually. Okay, so, okay, so how should you serve? Well, we're going to break this down. Again, this is just a very systematic, very, very clean-cut reminder today. This is our self-assessment profile. That's what we're doing this morning. Point number one, serve the body. That's one way. And, and that certainly is the most specific, direct application of spiritual gifts. The context of spiritual gifts primarily is for the service of the body of Christ. The third of the three major places in the entire Bible that deal with the subject of spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and then Romans 12. We have now in front of us some of those verses. Romans 12, 6 through 8, context, spiritual gifts. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, in other words, service, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. And so there are various gifts that are made available, and God gives severally to each man as he will. You will receive a supernatural empowering in a particular area or two where you find yourself the most fruitful when you plug in in accordance with your gifting. If you don't know what that's all about, then go through discipleship and come an MTT and learn that because we'll teach you in great detail. But each of these are various areas where you'll find it'll come very naturally, you feel very comfortable doing it, and God will use you when you do it. So that's kind of specific applications of gifts. But if we just keep reading in Romans, we'll find a very general application of the gifts. Starting in verse 9, Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. In honor, preferring one another, if we just did that, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit. You see, all of these things summarize what it means to be serving the Lord. Serving the Lord, verse 11. Because that's what a true disciple does. True disciples of Jesus Christ serve. That's what they do. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. I beseech you, brethren. Then he says, hang on a second. I'm going to say something in parentheses. 
You know the house of Stephanus, that it's the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. By the way, remember those guys? Those, those, those nuts for Jesus? They're nuts, but they're screwed onto the right bolt. I mean, okay. <laughs> remember those guys? Okay. I beseech you, brethren, jump past the parentheses, that ye submit yourselves unto such. And to everyone that helpeth with us and laboreth. So what's he saying? He's saying typically what you need to do is you need to submit yourself to the supervision and the leadership of typically ministry leaders and pastors. Why? Because ministry leaders and pastors got those positions typically because they have proven themselves to be the nuts screwed onto the right bolt. They have proven themselves to be addicted to the ministry of the saints. They just can't seem to get enough of it. Not everybody's wired that way. So if you find yourself wired that way, okay, okay, it doesn't say everybody is, but it says, man, find those guys and submit yourself to them and get busy. That's what it says. Do your part, right? If you can't shoot, carry bullets. I mean, do something. So serving the body in the church is good. It is. It's super important. We couldn't do what we do without everybody helping like you do. But there is a higher level, right? And that's number two, serve the world. Simon Peter made it clear, 2 Peter chapter 1. This is another class in MTT. Wasn't supposed to be a commercial for that, but whatever. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge, knowledge temperance. Temperance, patience, patience, godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness, and a brotherly kindness, charity. These are additive principles. You start with your faith, your saving faith, and the first thing, the way God grows disciples, is according to seven natural steps of spiritual growth. The first one is virtue, right? And you work your way up through brotherly kindness, and then charity is the highest level of your spiritual growth and development and service. And, and it's interesting because it's higher than brotherly kindness or brotherly love. And, and if you want to boil it down, brotherly kindness could be brotherly love, and charity oftentimes is considered love. And so this is deep. You already got your pencils. The difference between brotherly love and love is brotherly. This is hard, isn't it? Okay, so when you take the brotherly out, the qualifier is no longer I'm just considered uh, a servant toward the family of God. Now I'm going to serve the whole world. That's a higher level. Love your enemies, Jesus said. Right? It's harder. But that's God's mission. And love or charity, well, is God's motivation for His mission. John 3.16, God so loved the whole world, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? So here's the question. How do you look at the world? I mean, how did Jesus look at the world? Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the multitudes, the multitudes represent Gentiles, just people out there, just lost people. He was moved with compassion on them. It didn't say, by the way, that he felt compassion. He was moved with compassion because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. They were without the shepherd. They were without Christ. So what are we going to do about it? Then said he unto his disciples, true disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. These are evangelists. These are people that are going to go out and go find them some sheep. Bring them to the shepherd, right? Jesus also said earlier in his ministry, Matthew 4, 19, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, right? So if you're following, you're fishing. That's the way it works. If you're not fishing, you're not following. 
Paul said it this way, Romans chapter 1, verse 14. Notice the words, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. These are lost people. I'm a debtor to lost people, he said. How? Both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see, it's the gospel. It's taking the word of God to the lost world so that they can get in on it before it's too late. This is the ultimate level of demonstrating your application of keeping the commandments. The ultimate commandment, the Great Commission, right? Paul felt it so deeply that in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 16, he said, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Y'all are involved in all, this is a fairly large room. You're involved in all areas of our local community and society. There shouldn't be a person out there that doesn't know that they have a chance to be saved. If you just consider the people in your circle and how God could use you. You say, well, that's awkward. I'm, you know, I'm shy. Yeah, okay, so. Yeah, me too. I mean, I know, shocker. Me too, truly. Do it anyway. Do the work of an evangelist. I mean, do you love the Lord? I mean, this is really what it boils down to, and this is my point. Are you a follower of Jesus? Are you a true disciple? I mean, that's what, a, that's what disciple means, a student, a follower. Do you see yourself as a debtor to the lost to get the gospel to them? Are you moved with compassion when you see them? So, okay, cool. We get supernatural help from God to perform His great commission. But even serving in your gifts is going to need that right balance, right? So, 1 Corinthians 12, that great chapter on gifts, ends with verse 31, where he says, But covet earnestly the best gifts. Interesting study what those are. It's okay, we're not doing that today. And yet I show unto you a more excellent way. Okay, so gifts and serving are excellent. But what's coming in chapter 13 is even more excellent. Chapter 13 obviously speaks of your motivation for serving. And that, that's where we're going to land with the last portion of this message. Point number three, energized to serve. Energized. So we're clearly expected to serve and equipped to serve. Those are facts and they are not in dispute. But what energizes you? That's really where we want to land today. The fact is, is that people are motivated by several different things. And even in the Bible, we see three levels of Christian commitment all the way through, right? So, you know, level one is good. Level two is better. Level three is best. I mean, just consider it that way. Good, better, best. One isn't bad. One is good. Two is better. Three is best. Okay? Okay, so let's look at the 12 apostles. The 12 apostles, I mean, they were apostles. That's really good. I mean, they made it. There was only 12 of them. I mean, they made it to be apostles. They were really good disciples. They, they got to this level. There was 12 of them. But you know of that 12... Peter, James, and John were a unique subset. Peter, James, and John got invited into certain rooms and got to participate in certain things with Jesus that the other nine didn't really get invited into. But of Peter, James, and John, there was only one guy that went all the way to the cross with Jesus, and that was John. There's always three different levels. In fact, if you look at the narrative in John chapter 13, this is actually... You know, the, the, the last Passover supper that Jesus had and the foot washing and all that. And, and John 13, 21 to 26. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in his spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was 
leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. This is John's way of speaking of himself in third person. It's John. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then lying on Jesus' breast saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Who, who's the one who's going to betray you? Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Shockingly, they didn't get it after that. But if you compare the account back in Matthew of this same event, what you find is John, the beloved disciple, was the only disciple to never question whether or not it might be him that was going to betray Jesus Christ. Because in Matthew, for example, you run the reference on your own, all the other disciples went to Jesus when he said this and they said, Lord, is it I? Is it I? Today in T County would say, is it me? But they spoke English right, so is it I? And John didn't say, could it be me? No, John said, who is it? I know who it ain't. I don't know who it is. John was special. Uh, you've got that whole deal with the parable of the sower, the seed and the soil, where you've got some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. That's Mark 4, 8, right? They plant the soil, they plant, they throw out the seed in the soil. If the soil is good soil, it's going to produce fruit. But not all soil produces the same amount of fruit. Some is 30-fold. That's good. It's not bad. 60 is better, right? 100 is the best, no question about it. I mean, nobody would doubt that. You have John 15, where Jesus is talking about, you know, the vine and the branches and that whole thing and fruit bearing. And there's three levels. There's fruit, there's more fruit. And there's much fruit. Notice John 15, 1. I'm the true vine, my father's the husbandman. Every branch in me that bringeth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. So fruit is good, but we'd like more. So we're going to purge off some of the dry stuff around you. And okay, we're going to make you bear more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. The branch, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him. The same bringeth forth much fruit. That's even higher than more fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Verse 8, notice, herein is my Father glorified. That you bear fruit? No. That you bear more fruit? No. That you bear much fruit. Oh yeah, and it's connected to true discipleship. So shall ye be my disciples. The Lord is clearly counting the lord is clearly watching the lord is clearly examining us the lord is clearly a fruit inspector right true disciples are the ones that bring forth maximum fruit well that's not all revelation 12:11 we have this issue of the blood the testimony and death revelation 12:11 i know the context is the tribulation but still there's three levels and they overcame him the devil how? Three ways. One, by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Everybody who's ever been saved, at least in the church age, right? You have overcome the devil by Jesus' blood, cleansing you. Hallelujah. That's very good. But not all saved people actually tell other people their story, the word of their testimony. That's a smaller group. And not all people who tell people the word of their testimony sacrifice to the point of death. Now, death can be physical death. There were literal martyrs in this time, or there will be, right? That's the idea. But, but there's also the application of just completely and totally dying to yourself. That's the highest level, isn't it? Revelation 17. I know it's a tribulation context, but we have the called, the chosen, the faithful. There's three. There's always three. 
These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And they that are with Him, with the Lamb, are called and chosen and faithful. So, you know what? Many are called, but few are chosen. You remember that. Yeah, and even fewer are actually faithful. Level one is good. Level two is better. Three is the best. Clearly God is paying attention. He differentiates. Amen? Okay, so this is what I want you to see. This is in your notes. We will serve best when our motivation is right. Does that not make sense? When our motivation is right, you'll do a better job. There's no question about it. So we'll start with the lowest and we'll work our way up. The lowest is fear. That's the lowest level denominator for, for motivation for serving. And fear is the motivation of servants. That's the motivation of servants. This is where everybody starts. Servants serve from fear. He worries that if he doesn't serve well, he's going to be punished. A lot of believers live their entire Christian lives in this category. They serve from some form of guilt or fear that God's out to get them if they don't perform well. Fear of judgment. Maybe needless fear of losing their salvation if they have bad doctrine. We are called Christ's servants. Yes, but not in the sense that we should serve out of fear, like we're afraid of him. This is the relationship of a master and a servant, and, and that kind of a relationship is actually not very personal. In this scenario, the servants do what they have to. They don't do what they want to. Fearing the Lord certainly is a biblical thing. It's, it's, it's very important. It's good. Hebrews 12, 28. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. It's legitimate. God even uses this motivation for us at times because, well, at times we need it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're squarely back in the church epistles. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Verse 11, knowing therefore, what does he call it? The terror of the Lord. That blessed hope of the rapture and the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ is also referred to in conjunction with the very next event, the judgment seat of Christ, called the terror of the Lord. Knowing the terror of the Lord, well, we're motivated to do stuff, aren't we? We're going to persuade men. So it's not bad. It's just the most base elementary level. What it does is it helps you deal with the lust of the flesh. That's what fear does. It helps you deal with the lust of the flesh. Okay, the number two, rewards. Rewards is the motivation of hirelings. That's what that is. And a lot of Christians are in this category. A hireling doesn't serve out of fear. They serve for rewards. If he doesn't get paid, he's not going to do it. It's like the relationship of a boss and an employee. You may have a good job. You may like your boss. You guys may be friends. That would be great if that was the case. But you're only working together every day because you both know that each of you are going to get some tangible reward at the end of the day or week or month. Right? I mean, just stop paying them and see how long they show up for work. Right? Okay, so obviously there's different kinds of rewards. Letter A, there's the earthly reward version. Some people won't serve the Lord if they don't get something back for it here and now. Right? This is most certainly the most carnal motivation of all. Malachi chapter 3 addresses it, verse 13. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord, yet ye say, what have we spoken so much against thee? What are you talking about? And then God says, well, okay, you want, you want to know. Ye have said, it's vain to serve God. What profit is it that we've kept his ordinance, that we've walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? What are we getting out of it? So people in this category, again, generally quit eventually. Because the truth of the matter is, you rarely get enough back tangibly and materially in this world 
to compare or offset the amount of investment you put in to serve the Lord and His body. You put a lot in. And if you're just looking for the cash payout now, you're going to get frustrated. You think it's not worth it and you're going to quit. Okay, so there's a higher level. Letter B, you know where we're going. It's a heavenly reward, right? Now, this is more noble than looking for an earthly payout. We know that we're not always going to get rewarded here and now, and that's okay. We know that we can't outgive God, praise the Lord, and whatever we do for the Lord will be rewarded in heaven. And there may be things that you're asked to do that you may not really enjoy, but deep, deep down you're like, I do kind of want the reward, so I'll do it. You're just in the long-term investment project portfolio, and you're deferring collecting until later. Well, good, that's better than needing it now, right? That's better. You can see afar off. You know the Lord is returning. You know He's going to reward you, and you want in on it. Okay, cool. God knows that's a legitimate motivation, so He uses it to motivate you. The 1 Corinthians 3.12, the whole deal associated with the judgment seat, you could have gold or silver or precious stones or all of them together in some combination. Those are legitimate rewards, right? I mean, even the original disciples wrestled with this situation, right? They asked Jesus, what do we get out of this? We've been putting it out. We're sacrificing. What do we get out of it? This is Matthew 19, 27. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we've forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? Well, Jesus answered. He just answered with heavenly rewards, not earthly. Verse 28, Jesus saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, later, not now, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So see, this, this motivation of reward, it helps you deal with the lust of the eyes. I want what I want, and I want it now. It's good. It's better than fear. But the best of all is love. That's number three, and that's the motivation of sons. Motivation of sons. Sons serve from love simply because they're family. There's no need for supervision for this person. They have no fear of punishment or loss. They have no need for monetary reward. They feel an obligation to participate as a member of the family. Sonship leads to service. My father needs help. I will help. Period. And it's done. If you were with us at 9 a.m., we did a review of the book of Proverbs and Proverbs begin many of the chapters where it's fatherly advice to his son, right? And so I have a list of the Proverbs there, and, and we'll just read some of them. We may not even get to all of them. Proverbs 1.8, My son, hear the instruction of thy father, and forsake not the law of thy mother. 2.1, My son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with me. 3.1, My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. 4.1-4, Hear ye children the instructions of a father, and tend unto no understanding. Jump down to chapter 5. My son, attend unto my wisdom. 6. My son, if thou be surety. And it goes on and on and on and just lists all these places where literally it's a family relationship. And, and you should read that and hear that. Your heavenly father wants to speak to you. That's the kind of relationship God wants to have with you because you too are spiritual sons of David. We are the sons of God positionally. We don't always live like it. Sometimes we might live like the prodigal son. I want what I want. I want it now. And we go and we waste our life on riotous living. But at this level, if you can serve motivated by love alone, you know what? You're living for something bigger than yourself. More important than personal comfort. At this level, your life has purpose and your life has direction. And it's the highest level of all. 
Now remember I mentioned 1 Corinthians 12, 31, covet earnestly the best gifts, I show you a more excellent way. 1 Corinthians 13, of course, that greatest chapter on charity. And the first three verses make the association between charity and service. And, and it shows the superiority of charity over ministry. And I just want to read those and I want you to notice the spiritual gifts that are listed in these verses. 1 Corinthians 13, 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity. That's the spiritual gift. It was back then. I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, that was a gift, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, that was a temporary spiritual gift in the first century. And though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, those are all listed as spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, the gift of giving, and though I give my body to be burned, the ultimate sacrifice and service, I don't have charity, it profits me nothing. That's what he's saying. There's a higher way, a more excellent way. Because love is the highest motivation for service you can have. Love leads to self-sacrifice. Love helps you deal with the pride of life. Because you're dead to yourself. You don't care about you anymore. When you reach this level, the issue is settled. You've made your decision. Like Joshua of old, Joshua 24, 14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil to you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, doggone it, we're going to serve the Lord. You just make up your mind and it's just going to be that way. True disciples of Jesus Christ, and you've got a list of references there, I think, maybe you don't. They come through the book of John. I read 8.31, if you continue in my word, you're my disciples indeed. John 13.35, if you love the brethren, you're my disciples indeed, right? John 15.8, you bear much fruit, and so you'll be my disciples. Luke 14.26-27 to the end, if you don't hate your father, mother, sister, brother, you can't be my disciples, meaning if you don't love me more than interpersonal relationships if you're not willing to take up your cross and follow me these are things that constitute true disciples right and it all goes back to relationship it all goes back to the issue of what kind of relationship do you have with the Lord I did not say do you have one I said what kind do you have he wants you to serve him as a son we're going to close with this, 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. And you can do that because, if we read a little further in verse 17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things passed away all things are become new right and all things are of God which has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given us ministry the ministry of reconciliation and y'all I just pray that even now we're going to pray and we're going to be done and we're going to close with one last song that you would consider what has been your motivation for serving what has been the why behind the what and maybe some of you don't even know if you're saved and you need to get that taken care of man come see me come talk to somebody we'll help you and maybe some of you really don't serve at all maybe you just you know you're just kind of a barnacle on the on the ship of the church of Jesus Christ you just kind of kind of a parasite you know good for you whatever I mean you want to get involved let's get let's get busy and pull in the same direction Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We're certainly thankful for all that you've done for us. And I'm very thankful for the reminder that your word gives us of all the good and perfect things and gifts that you've given to us. Lord, we don't deserve any of it. And you decided to do all that when we were your enemies. Lord, now we're your family. And I just pray that each and every one, as they're assessing their own situation and condition with you, Lord, if there's sin to be dealt with, 
I pray that today would be the last day they ever have to deal with it because they deal with it once and for all. And it'll be done. And I pray that you'd be honored and glorified. I pray there'd be some serious surrendering going on right now. That people would just say, my life is going to be different. I'm just going to decide. As for me and my house, we're serving the Lord. Whatever it costs me, wherever it takes me, I don't even know. It doesn't even matter. I'm doing it. My father needs help. I'm going to help, period. Lord, we do love you, and we pray that our lives will show it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Go ahead and stand up with me.